Welcome to the Final Score Network and the Final Score Podcast, presented by Team Anders Realtors. I'm Andy. He's former D3 student athlete and co-host... Ryan! Find us on Podbean, the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at TheFinalScore35. There is always plenty to run through, but before we get to it, a word from our presenting sponsor. Team Anders' goal is to serve its clients in finding the home that best fits their needs and make the process simple and fun along the way. They are a team of people who will be in close communication personally taking care of your real estate needs through technology, marketing, and advertising. Team Anders has served thousands of clients over 30-plus years in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, and are here to serve you today. Learn more at teamanders.com. Here we go. Last podcast of 2021. About to say good riddance 2021. One thing, real quick, just news just broke recently probably within the last hour or so, RIP John Madden. And of course, you know, kids Ryan's age have Madden football for, you know, for all the years of PlayStation, Xbox, whatever. That's kind of mostly how they remember John Madden, but people my age, my boys that listen, especially like Chris, we were talking about a little bit tonight. It was Sunday, a big game on Sunday, when you heard John Madden and Pat Summerall when you rounded the corner and heard the family room TV on. Maybe before anybody, had, you know, we had cable and you were flipping between back then, CBS and NBC. NBC had the AFC, CBS had the NFC. And if you heard Summerall and, and Madden, classic. I hope we get a little Frank Caliendo reboot of, of him calling an old game with the two of them because he, he does the impersons, uh, imperson, impressions so well. Uh, but just an absolute legend, a phenomenal coach. You know, most people forget he actually was a really, really great coach. Uh, on top of just being just an entertaining, great commentator. Rest in peace, Coach Madden. Lots of other stuff to talk about. Um, special guest that's going to fill a lot of our air this time. We did a little pre-recording of this just before Christmas, so that's actually going to take up a couple spots. And so to keep it quick and on pace, we're going to skip right to the podiums. Ryan and I are going to share a lectern. This won't surprise people who like my podiums. Um, but Ryan's going to get in on the fray, too. He's going to go, and then I'm just going to tag on to it. So, Ryan, podium's yours. Yeah. Uh, so, this week, we're going to talk about uh, bowl cancellations. Shocking. We're going to talk about something being canceled. Um, yeah, they're, they're piling up as we speak. Um, you know, I think, what do we have so far? Fenway Bowl's gone. Um, the Holiday Bowl tonight was canceled like five hours before kickoff. Um, the Hawaii Bowl was canceled the day before. Um, Memphis flew all the way there, wasted all their money going there. Um, what else we got? Uh, military Bowl between East Carolina and Boston College canceled. Um, I'm sure there'll be more. The Arizona Bowl between uh, Central and Boise canceled. Uh, Central now playing in the Sun Bowl. Um, it's getting ridiculous. I mean... I, we, we get the COVID thing, but what, you're canceling these. Like, why are you having them? Why are these a thing if you're going to cancel them? I feel like these are predetermined. I, that's just me, but I, I can't stand this stuff. And it's going to keep going on. And it's happening with college basketball. They're canceling games. They're moving games. It's like, this needs to stop. When is it going to stop? Hopefully soon, but probably never. I, I don't know. Well, it's just, I mean, everything 
shifts every day, right? Like a week ago, we're getting a threat from Sleepy Joe about, you know, the unvaccinated, you better be in for a winter of death. And now the CDC says people only have to, um, you know, hide out for five days, vaxxed or unvaxxed, if they test positive, asymptomatic. First of all, let me ask this question. Why in the absolute F are we testing vaccinated college football players who are asymptomatic? That is asinine, it's stupid, it's ridiculous, and it's why we're canceling bowl games. Think about the ramifications of these cancellations. Sponsor money. Bowl money to the teams that got screwed. Teams like Ryan said, like Memphis, even CMU. CMU, I guess, caught it mid-flight and shifted to go to El Paso, but Memphis was all the way there. NC State, all the way in San Diego. And oh, by the way, didn't stay at home for Christmas. For these things, their fans, their alumni. We've got gas three plus dollars a gallon. We've got inflation at its highest since Jimmy Carter. We've got people who, you know, braved it and ponied up a few bucks to go to these games. And you're just like, oh yeah, we'll just cancel it. Eh, no big deal. Stop. Where are your freaking heads? Oh, that's that's right. We talked last week. I talked last week about the softening of America. We have stupid people leading at all levels in this nation right now. COVID, yes. Are there unfortunate circumstances? I've said it a million times. Yes. The survival rate for people under 30, so these college athletes in particular, 99.997%. And we have our freaking panties in a wad and on fire to to cancel games at the last minute. Screw these kids who are never going to play a game again. Like these seniors for NC State, these seniors for Memphis, looking forward to one last time to suit up and play the, the the game they love. Taken away from them. Because of what? Because some some vaccinated people with this supposed vaccine that works. By the way, we're on what? Our fourth jab here pretty soon in a year. Would you get four flu shots in a year? This is stupid. If somebody would just stop. I said this to Ryan the other day. His kids or their kids are someday going to look back at this generation and go, what in the absolute you-know-what were you people thinking? Oh, I got an answer for you. We aren't. Because anybody with any semblance of intelligence knows that all of this is ridiculous. Now, never mind the fact that 42 freaking bowl games is way too much to begin with. And maybe if you just blanket said, hey, we're already rewarding three-quarters of college football anyway. Let's just give everybody two weeks of practice in December, and you can get that third week or that extra couple days if you're actually going to a bowl game. Then maybe if we had half the bowl games, we'd have some teams we could call up and say, hey, you know, hey, you guys have been practicing. You available to come down next week? And let's cancel these things a week before, before people get on airplanes, not when they're already there. Not when NC State traveled across the country to San Diego, went through all the bowl activities, so great, they get that out of it. At what? A cost to the university. they got to pay the sponsors back first before they pay the schools. Where's the revenue going to come for these schools? It's stupid. And if you side for one second that, oh, it's just an air caution, no, stop. The NFL, the, the NHL, the NBA, 97 plus percent vaccinated they're doing the same stupid thing you don't hear about outbreaks in the fans these are healthy athletes they're not going to die from covid can we stop two years into this already and be freaking normal and stop politicizing this crap because i can tell you i'm definitely going to politicize it because i know where the answer lies all right
going to stay on a little bit of a rant, and I'm going to handle the tee up this week before we get into um, around the world. I saw this one on on the athletic today, and actually, it first caught my attention. Because I was like, oh boy, I was rubbing my hands together. I was ready to go off on this one. So let me pull it up here a second and tell you what the headline was. Well, i got to find it here a second. By, by the way, while I'm doing that, how about the SEC 0-3 uh, so far in bowl games against Power 5 or group of 5 two, schools? So yeah, and losing to, well, at least that's a, a group, you know, a Power 5 school. But shoot, I can't find this. Let me... Let me give you kind of the, the impetus of this. So what I thought was a headline, and it definitely was clickbait because it got my attention, was has Michigan caught up to and on their way to surpassing Ohio State now? And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I had, of course, read it to see what, what which uh, you know writer to unfollow. I'm going to tee up the idiot fans. And actually, I'm going to tee up all delusional Michigan fans. I'm not going to tee up all Michigan fans, but delusional Michigan fans. This person thinks because Michigan had a ninth-ranked recruiting class, which, by the way, those rankings don't really matter, and Ohio State's was fourth, that they've closed the gap and they're there. Um, How about this, delusional Michigan fan? Ohio State signed about seven less players in their class. If you kind of average it out, they average to about a top 100 recruit is about the, the quality of their, their guys. Yours is a top 300. You beat them once in the last, what, 10, 11 years, twice in the last 17 years. You won your first Big Ten title in you know the modern era, so to speak, since like, what, 2003, 2004, and you're trying to tell us that you're back? And, and, and I heard today a buddy called me and said that they're talking about how they better get you know the the DC and the OC signed up and and give Jim a new extension and and give him more money. You are a joke. I'm going to tee you up for being stupid, delusional, and forgetting all all the stuff that's led up to now. Are you catching up to Ohio State? Not even close. Are you catching up to Michigan State? Maybe. Michigan State's ten and four over you in the last fourteen years. I think that's a better site for you to put your target on. All right, for around the world, first we're going to introduce a special guest because this segment was great and we dive into so many different things from being a coach to being an assistant coach to being um, an official. We are actually covering our first two segments with this interview with Coach Ken George, coach at Forest Hill Central, my high school alma mater for nearly 25 years. now as assistant coach at Hope, he's in his second year there. Ryan got to play for him for a year. Ryan has worked you know, with and for him a lot in his camps over the years. He officiated for two years. This is going to be worth a listen to just basketball fans because he sheds so much great light on what it's like to be a coach, an assistant coach, and an official at all various levels. Enjoy. We're going to start around the world with a special guest today. Ryan has both played and worked camps for this guy. He's a great friend to me and a mentor to Ryan. Welcome to the Final Score Podcast, Coach Ken George. Coach joins us today on the pod to give us a little look behind the curtains. Coach, you offer the unique perspective of being a longtime high school coach, an official, and now an assistant college coach. Give us one plus and minus for each and which one was or is your favorite gig and maybe why. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, my favorite one, I, I'll take that part of it first. My favorite one 
has been every one at that time. Like, I feel like at that time in my life, each one was my favorite. When I was a high school coach, I mean, my family lived it for 24 years. My wife lived it with me. I coached my kids, all of that. And in that, I mean, that is a long time, by the way. In that, it was uh, it was my favorite. Like, it's just, and even looking back at it, it was unbelievable that the what my kids grew up in, and we just had some incredible times with them on the bench um, and then playing for me and then sitting next to me, coaching with me, Jordan, for a while. So that was my favorite thing at that time. Then being an official, that I freaking loved it. Like, I loved officiating. And I did it for two years and um, tried to get better, was working my way up a little bit, did some small college JV games and stuff like that. And uh, I loved it. And at that time, after having just quit coaching, that was my favorite by far. Like, I loved that at that time. And now doing the college coaching thing is my favorite right now. Like, I just, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out what to do with my life. So I feel like every stage, what I've done has been my favorite. And this is awesome right now. This is really what I should be doing, I think, right now. Do I miss the other parts of the other things? Maybe I do, you know, partly. Um, But this is my favorite right now. A pro and con for each one, that's really hard. A pro for being a high school coach, um, I have major control issues. Ryan Gam knows that um, no. <laughs> uh, from hanging out with me for a little while. And the pro to being the head coach of the high school program was I had 100% control of every single part of every single thing of every day of every moment. And that worked for me <laughs> because that's that's how I am. A con uh, to being a high school coach, eh, losing. No, losing. <laughs> no, just losing. Losing always sucks. Losing is brutal, Andy and Ryan. It's brutal. And because, you know, you throw everything in and, and, you know, grind for who knows how long. And then you get beat and you wake up the next day and it's, it sucked. It sucked. The other negative I would say would be right before games, like the couple hours leading up to games, really for my last 10 years, the couple hours leading up to games, I wanted to quit every day. Uh, I, I wanted out. I, I, I It was awful. The pressure to win, and it was mostly self-imposed, I'm sure, was brutal, and I hated it. Um, But then once the game started, I was fine. Well, one of the losing... Uh, Proto-officiating, the camaraderie with other people and getting taught and being a mentee with so many other people helping me, I loved that. And I loved the energy of trying to get better at it. It's hard. It is hard. And I liked challenging myself at 50 years old to try to get better at something. It was in my wheelhouse, but a totally different side of the wheelhouse. You know, it was in basketball, but a totally different angle with basketball. Um, negative officiating, yeah, people screaming at me. God, I'm just out of control. It's ridiculous. Like, I'm a rookie trying to officiate out there, and people are ripping on me. I'm just trying to do my best and make my $35 and go home. For the so. record, I never, ever yelled at an official. <laughs> as a coach or as a, or as a parent, never. <laughs> right, right. I was out recruiting last night, and I was at a high school game. And I'm telling you what, it's out of control. And I'm not saying the officials were great, but they tried. I think... The problem I have with officials is if they don't run and try, you know, I mean, right. you really got to try that, that bothers me, but I will be on the side of the officials in almost all situations. And what these parents were doing to these officials last night, this mm-hmm. game was out of control, out of control. But anyway, and then um, plus minus for what I'm doing right now, uh, it's so fun being in the college game, just a different game, learning more um, from other coaches and other situations and just re-energizing myself as a coach. And, um, and yeah, the, the pro, I guess, would be 
I'm not the head coach. <laughs> I mean, there's pros to that, that it's not, it doesn't all fall on me in the end. Um, the con to it, well, you know, I have control issues. There's certain parts of everything we do that I don't get to control, and that's fine. I'm, I'm like, I'm not that coach, and I don't really want even to do it, but I've had to switch my brain a little bit into the assistant mode, for sure. Right. Makes it a little bit tougher. Been, uh, it's, it's been cool. Before we get into Ryan's questions, I, I will say that, you know, you talked about losing and, and how that feels. I, I can still vividly remember a, one district game in Ryan's last high school game when you guys made a late shot, and Ryan got a rebound and had a chance at the end and we just couldn't quite get it to the hoop and that was the end of a high school career so as a parent I can say from that side when you see your your kid who puts all the work into it how it feels so I can imagine and I mean I coached a little bit but not like you I coached AAU you don't ride your wins and losses quite as much in that but losing even as a fan losing is hard and losing as a parent of a of a player and I'm sure it was tough for Meg too as coach's wife losing as coach's wife is hard too just because we all feel it for our family member or our parent or whoever is doing the coaching. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely a stage in there. Here's the other side of that. There's definitely a stage in my coaching career. I would say in my last six, seven, eight years where wins were a relief. I, I didn't even really celebrate them. It, they were just a relief mm-hmm. and losses were brutal. So there was for a while, there was no real true celebrating wins all there was was relief after wins and think about the next game and how can we win the next game and then just being rock bottom after losses. And that's not a great way to coach. That is not a great experience because you don't even get the great times. Then over the last, as soon as I knew I was going to quit, my last three or four years, I purposefully and made, I don't know, major moves in my life to celebrate wins and to to let myself celebrate wins and to not just feel the relief of the win because that's, I mean, all the time you put it in, and if you win, and you don't even feel you don't even feel good about the win, what the heck are we doing? I know. I remember not too long ago, Izzo was kind of in that place at Michigan State, where you know he's in it because he wants to win that elusive second national championship. But he kind of felt the same thing, like it was a relief because of expectations or whatever else that you won. And yeah. that that's kind of a that's tough. I mean, like any walk of life, it doesn't even if it's just your job, and you're you're relieved that you got it done, and you're not proud that you accomplished something, then it. It changes it a little bit for sure. All right, Ryan, you got a yeah, bunch absolutely. of questions for Coach. So. Yeah, we got a laundry list here for Coach. So we just want to get, want to get your your ref and Coach perspective here on just a bunch of topics we have. Uh, start with some general hoop stuff. So uh, college game one and done rule should it change and does it hurt college basketball? You know, I mean, and I listen to you guys talk about Kenneth Walker skipping the college, the bowl game, whatever, and. Um, and I think it's just another sign about the individuality of things nowadays, how it used to be about the full team and the experience and all of that. And it's just not. It's not. I don't know whose fault it is. I don't know what happened. I don't know why, but it is very player-centered, very individual-centered, all of it. All of it is. And uh, I think it's just another sign of where it's about the, the, the kid first. Does it hurt the college game? Yeah, I mean, I think somewhat. But in the culture we're in right now, there's no way that you can – turn down that money. I mean, that, that a kid like, I mean, sitting out there and whatever. And, and uh, I mean, it's kind of disappointing to me in some ways as is guys skipping bowl games. I mean, when did that start? I mean, that was Andy, that was not a thing. No, not when I mean, we were that young, was not no. a thing because I mean, there were people turning that, that were ready to sign big contracts 
Um, and they played in bowl games. When's the first guy that skipped a bowl game? Three, four, five years ago? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I don't it's feel been, like it's very long. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, honestly, Coach, I think Ryan and I have talked about that on the pod recently, too, is I think it's just because there's so many dang bowl games. Like, if you have a winning record, it's the trophy thing, right? Everybody gets a trophy. Per- yeah. per- if you have a winning yeah. record or a 500 record, you get into a bowl. And when we were young, there were, like, maybe 20 games. I mean, maybe. Yeah. And so it was a real honor and a privilege. Like, I, I we talked a couple weeks ago, ago about the MAC. I mean, one MAC team got into a bowl game when in the '80s and the '90s when we were younger, yeah. and now everybody that's got a, at least a 500 record gets in one, and it's like it yeah. kind of it waters it down, and I think that makes it so it's not as special, and yeah. so the kids just are like, eh, whatever, I'll, I'll just I'll do my pro thing instead. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I mean in college basketball, whatever. But Ryan, I would say, I mean, I don't think it should change. I think it's a part of how we are nowadays, and you know, does it hurt sure. the college game? Yeah, a little bit, but it's really interesting that transfer portals changed everything. It has. It's 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 insane. So moving on, another basketball question here. So end of shot clock violation that stops a fast break. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I thought I was the only guy that noticed that. I thought oh. I was. You noticed. We that? notice that all the time. Oh. It's been the on our list to talk about for a while. Rebound takes uh-huh. a dribble and then the, the whistle blows. Yeah, and then you I, get the tap. Yeah, yeah, and I did not. You know, I officiated with a shot clock. I did maybe five college games in my illustrious two-year refereeing <laughs> career. Um, so I refereed with a shot clock very rarely. In fact, I remember being very nervous pregame, sitting in the officials' room, talking with the officials, like, "What's this? You know, how do I do this signal? <laughs> tap my head. What do I do? And whatever." I was like, "Cover me on that," because I have no clue what I'm doing, you guys. And uh, yeah, but I and I don't get it. Like, so it doesn't hit the rim. The other team has the ball, and they take a dribble, and then they blow the whistle. So I I don't get it. I don't know if it's a rule thing. Do you know, right? Like, no, I don't. I, I guess specifically, why do they still stop it? I have no idea. I think I'm judgment, maybe. You know, I you know, I don't know. I, I just wish they would be a play on if it doesn't hit the rim and the other team clearly has it. I mean, it's one thing yeah. if if you're kind of still volleying it around or whatever, and it's a loose ball, then you know maybe that's a whole different perspective. But when you have, I think things, it's a weird play. I'm, yeah. I'm with you. I thought I was the only guy that noticed that. Yeah, let them let them play on. Obviously, let them play on. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, one or the other, pile up easy wins or play a hard out of conference slate. Which uh, which one would you rather do? Oh man, I will tell you, there's something about winning. I'm just saying, there's something about winning. You know what winning breeds? Winning breeds togetherness. Winning breeds confidence. Winning breeds like like we're good enough, and you can actually pretty much convince a group that they are better than they really are because they are winning. And then they actually rise to that level and they start playing better and they actually win games then that they shouldn't win. Ooh, mm, I'm right in the middle with it. All right. I'm right in the middle. I would say that there are, there are times with certain teams that it might be better to go get some wins how about that? And I, that's in that. I like agree. that sounds incredibly no, soft. No, that's a, that's an honest, fair answer. And I think it is. It yeah. probably is very situational because yeah. you're right. You could have a young like you guys this year have a much younger team. You turned over six seniors, mm-hmm. you know, to get going and get that confidence with two, three, you know, maybe even four wins over. You know, maybe maybe the competition's not as great, but you can still sprinkle in. You know, yeah. like Michigan State, I think does it well. Of course, we're MSU fans. You're not necessarily, yeah. but. You know, um, <laughs> you, they do a good job of playing the Kansases and the Dukes and the Kentuckys and, you know, maybe a North Carolina or somebody else. And then they mix in a good mid-major like an Oakland, and then they mix in a fair amount of games that are going to be easy to win, you know, unless you just right. kind of catch a bad night. And I feel like that's a good mix because you, you can't – losing takes away your confidence. And I watch it as just as a, as a fan and as a parent of, you know, somebody who played college basketball too, like the losing kind of, it does, it breeds that 
frustration, it can kind of get things to fester when if there's a little bit of a scab on the team, all of a sudden that scab gets picked and yep. it might not have otherwise been. So I don't think yeah. your answer is waffling at all. I think that's I think that's a good, fair, honest answer, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I think winning, you know, Ryan, winning helps. Winning uh, does help everything. It really does. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, another ref question here. So thoughts on the hook and hold call. Is it a good rule or one that needs to be less scrutinized? You know, I, I think it kind of is grouped into a category of non-basketball or like things that are kind of cheating the game. You know, in the, in the um, NBA, how, how guys, you know, if they just had a hand up, guys would jump into the hand and they'd get to shoot two shots or they wouldn't even right. non-basketball plays were rewarded in the NBA for the last couple of years. And I would say in college basketball, sometimes too, the whole James Harden step back. I mean, that's the start of it, I think. Mm -hmm. So plays that are really cheating the game are not about what the game was supposed to be about. They are non-basketball rules or or situations that fit into the game and they're taking advantage of. I think that's a problem. Hook and hold, I mean, that's a non-basketball play. You grab somebody, you hook, and you're trying to draw a foul. Then the flop is all about that as well, you know? Um, I mean, I think, I don't know, I've watched – more small college basketball this year on tape than I've sat and watched Michigan State or other teams or whatever. I have not seen it called as much this year. I don't know if it is being called as much in the big games that I'm not watching. But, um, I mean, I think if it's a non-basketball play, you need to get non-basketball plays out of the game. And I think the NBA is moving towards that. You know, guys just lean in and all the all the crap plays that turned into free throws for NBA players and they're trying to get rid of that. I think hook and hold falls in that category of a non-basketball play. Yeah, and I, I would add to that just as a fan. It, you're right. I don't think it's been called as much after that first year. It's it's like anything, right? The first year it's being you know it's being called attention yeah. to. They're going to call it a lot more. Um, but I think it, when you when you kind of just make it known that you're going to call it, and maybe you just call it and you don't go to the monitor every time. If you see it, you call it and it's good. That's going to stop maybe the Brad Davisons to pick on somebody who does it all the time at Wisconsin. I mean, he draws travels from opponents that way. He'll get them on the uh-huh. pole and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, well, he has an advantage. He's 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, true. True. I think you look younger, actually. He does. <laughs> you might be younger, but that's kind of, I have the same feeling as like, I just, I guess my big thing is I don't mind if it's a, if it's a call and you're going to make it, then make it, but don't stop the game and look at every angle on the, yeah. like that yeah. just wastes time and games are already too long from that perspective. Was, yeah. Ryan and I said the other day when we went and watched you guys play, um, how much faster it was just to have a game go, right? Even, yeah. the, even the Calvin game that has quote TV timeouts doesn't take two and a half hours, right? Like, yeah. and that's how it should be. It should be that way. No doubt about that. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So sticking with another official thing. So the block charge, the the highly um, questionable <laughs> block charge. So should do you think it should be changed? And how tough is it for an official to make that judgment call there? Yeah, it's a, it's a nearly impossible call to make. And you even add in college where you, you have to know is it a blocker charge and you have to look at their feet and see if they're in the arc. I mean, that's, impo- that's impossible. I am amazed by the big-time officials, how, how good they are. Amazed when I watch big games um, and how good those officials are. So, yeah, I, I would say that 90-a lot percent of those plays are blocks. They're blocks. Um, I mean, the, think of the spirit of the rule, again, of the block charge. It is meant to, if a guy is standing there for a long time and someone's just going to run him over and go make a play, that's what the rule was meant to be. It has become 
the you know slide underneath on a one-on-one break at the last second or or you know jump in front of someone that just made a pass and then flop and all of those charges are uh, they're just not charges and they're blocks or they're play on and i see i think i see too often probably even that that something is called when really the play continues on and could just be you know let go but i think um i think far too many charges are called they're not charges the, the spirit of the rules if someone's standing there for a long time and they get just blitzed and that's not what is happening most of the time from the official point of view um like as a as an official trying to learn how to do it so officiating is so freaking hard because it's so fast and i've talked to a lot of the officials that do football as well and they love it they watch a hold or something. They're like, nah, maybe, maybe not. Grab their flag, think for a second, then throw it or don't throw it. Basketball, it happens like that. And the number of times I blew my whistle, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, I blew, I, like, I blew, here we go. I got to call one of them, you know, and because uh, it happens like that, you know. And it was a nearly impossible call. And what I ended up doing more than anything probably aired on the side of was play-ons like I, I there 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 would be major collisions in games that I was officiating right in front of me and I'm the lead down there right under the hoop and shit I don't know like okay like <laughs> I, I I'd let it go and it would they'd play to the other end and and you know officials talk a lot about I would love to do a whole officiating the officials talk a lot about supporting other officials and, and working as a crew so if I let one go on one end that's a maybe and then a trip later there's one on the other end that's a maybe I mean, we discussed the idea of you've got to, you know, you've got to let that go too, then to, you know, mm-hmm. carry on the same play at both ends. But anyway, I could talk block charge for a long time, obviously, but I think most of them, most of them are blocks and we call charge too often. Although I will say all those fans that are yelling, oh, the officials just love to call the, the charge because they can make the motion with their fist and they can get all the That is crap. That is crap. We are just trying to make the right call. It's no more fun to call a charge than it is a block. We're just trying not to suck. I think your thing, too, about the play on or 90% of them are blocks. The big problem that I have with the rule is it's because guys are so, I mean, just, you know, the game has evolved so much where guys are just more athletic. I mean, you've got centers that are have guard skills now. That never existed <laughs> when we were kids. Um and I just think it's so easy to get in a position where somebody has an awkward pull up because they're trying not to charge or they're not, you know, they're trying not to blow through it that you have a lot more potential cause for injury. And I think you get more undercutting and that's just not spirit of the game either. Like it's one thing if you're standing there on a fast break and it's, you know, one-on-one and you just take your spot and it's, it's a full second. And then the guy plows into you, that's clear. Right. But otherwise they need to get that in my mind, get that sliding in, Semi undercut, last second, just kind of lean his shoulder in. I, I just, it, first of all, it makes it hard for the officials, and it makes the fans go crazy because we don't like inconsistency as fans. But then, and it makes your life harder as an official. But it's just, it's not good for the players. I don't think either. Yeah, yeah. and it's not defense. It's not right. defense no. to slide in and just hope. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Not at all. Okay, one more in the general section. So, possession arrow or jump ball on a tie up like in the NBA, and like how it yeah. was 130 years ago. Yeah, jump balls are a joke. I, you you were involved in a lot of jump jump balls, Ryan Gam. I mean, they are a crapshoot. The toss is bad. Sure. People are cheating it, tipping it before it gets to the peak. Everyone's moving around the circle. They are not a valid basketball play because it's impossible. And you look at the NBA. Everyone, you know, throwing the ball up. A, a five ten official throwing the ball up between two seven footers. I mean, it's just you just can't do it. I, I don't think there's a way to make a jump ball legitimate. 
So I think the possession arrow is the right way to go. The the the, the one jump ball at the start of the game is good. The rest of them, I mean, you watch those jump balls in the NBA. It's I mean, people are sprinting all over the place and they're tapping it before it's even. I think one jump ball is more than enough. I agree, completely agree. So now let's go behind the scenes as a as an official here. So what do officials talk about during a game? You know, we talk pregame a lot first about just trying to be great, trying to do our best job, working together. And sometimes when you get with the same um, guys for a bunch of games, you really have a good camaraderie. I love that when I work games with the same guys. I've really gotten into that. Um, but when you're with other guys, you talk pregame a lot about, you know, just trying to do the best you can and, and be in position and work hard and whatever. In-game, you know, it's so interesting because you, you absolutely do not officiate in a vacuum. So, like, each call is not a solo call. And I know it, it should be. Like, it kind of should be. Like, that happened there, what was it, and then move on to the next call. But it's not. It's just not. I mean, like I already mentioned, with the block charge at one end and then what happens at the other end, it changes how you call that play at the other end. Um, I mean, if someone's down 35 to 10, you do not officiate that game the same way as a tight game. You just don't. So you talk about all those situations in the middle of the game with how things are going. And I'm not saying you change calls or whatever, but the game is different. You, you really don't officiate in a vacuum. Um, like, see that call, make that call. I mean, 90% of the time you do, but there are situations that I think come into play that, that make it different. Um, and in-game, yeah, you know, I, the one that I think is the funniest that always comes up, and I did it. I did it as a coach. You know, come on, it's 6-1. to one. We're getting screwed. It's 6-1 to one team fouls. What's going on? Do we talk about that during timeouts? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Um, I mean, we would walk next to each other and be like, it's 6-1 to one right here. Um, now, if someone's hacking the crap out of somebody on one end and not on the other end, we're not going to do anything. But we are aware of those situations as officials. We, we get the frustration of coaches and fans. Um, but it's not like we're changing calls. But, yeah, we talk about everything. And then definitely late game we're talking about who the shooter is likely. Are they going to try to foul? Where might the shot happen? Who's the lead? Who's the trail? Who's got the clock? Who's, you know, all of those kinds of things. I'm um, just trying to just trying to not be a part of the um, of the you know not not to impact the game more than the players you know not to be a part of how it ends and just to let the players decide how it ends I think that's a big thing in game that we talk about we kind of saw that the other night Ryan and I at the Rockford game when young young sophomore hit the half court shot to beat Union you know and it was bang bang even looking back at the film, was it, it out of his hand on time or whatever? But the refs just, you know, they said, all right, we're going to stick with it. We're yeah. going to make the call. They they got out of the way as the students rushed, <laughs> yeah. rushed him yeah. on the court. So I think that's, you know, especially in high school, it's different because you don't have replay. You don't have, you know, you're not looking at shot clocks. You're not looking at the clock and all that good stuff. But still, I mean, I think people just have to give um, – refs a little bit more credit and I'll probably be a little easier on refs now that I don't have somebody a vested interest of a son no. playing in the game but yeah. it's it's yeah. it's hard because you get caught up and you want it to be done but it's great to hear from somebody who's done it and hear how difficult it is which yeah. is why we it's, it's really hard you guys and he, I was thinking about it last night at this game and I've thought about it all the time that I've officiated you know what has never happened is I've never had a parent or a fan of one team complain when I make a call that helps them, right? Yeah. You know, like, like think about that. If the only calls you complain about are the calls that hurt your team, clearly you're not 
complaining about officiating, then you're complaining about calls that hurt your team. Right. Like if you really want to come and scream at officials for an entire game, then scream at every call that we screw up. Like if we call one where you guys you guys get two free throws out of it, but you think I missed it, get on me. Are you kidding me? That's not a foul. Like right. like that that didn't happen one time. That'll be not the day. One time did someone call <laughs> like yell at me for a call that helped their team. So you're not you're not even yeah. yelling about officiating. Yeah, it's not. It's you're not objective. It's not objective. Embarrassing to think about that. It makes no sense. You're not. You're not yelling about the officiating. You just want things to be better for your team. Obviously, like duh. Like I, I get that. But it makes no sense if you don't complain both sides, and no one ever does. So I don't know. I, I'm always going to side with officials. I just think it's really, really hard, and the pay sucks, and the travel's long, and you know they're doing it for the kids, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a problem with how they're treated. And it's widely known right now that there's a shortage and all that stuff. So. Absolutely. So staying with, the, with with officiating here, so how do you as an official handle unruly coaches and fans, and how far would you let a coach go before giving them that, that technical foul? Yeah, see, I think my officiating deal was much different than most people's because I went from you know 25 years as a varsity coach, knew all the coaches in the area or whatever, and the next, like, Four months later, I'm out there officiating a game for them. Um, and many of them had come to my coaching clinics. So, you know, it just was a very different situation. So I, I just didn't get ragged on that much by coaches. And, I, and, I, and I, I admittedly will tell you, I was not great. I was learning the gig, and I was not great. And, I, and I'll tell you about some calls I screwed up someday if you want. And I know I screwed them up. And, uh, and you know, after games or even at halftime, the guys I was working with would get on me. They're like, why is nobody yelling at you, Ken? Why? Like you blew that one and that one and no one's yelling at you. And every time I make a call, the coach is yelling at me. So I, I didn't really deal with a lot of it just because I knew I just had so many connections with so many coaches. Um, I teed up one person one time in my two years and it was a player that threw a ball at another player. I, you know, I, and I, I think the, the officials I had problems with as a coach were the officials that walked into the gym mad, not wanting to communicate with you and acting cooler than the game. Like that was a problem for me. Um, you know, if they walked up and they tried hard and they communicated with me and let me ask questions and I don't, they're going to miss them. I mean, it's the game is, they're going to miss some, but if you're not trying and being a jerk from the start that, that I had a problem with. So I openly communicated with coaches right from the very start and I, I didn't end up having to deal with too much. That's awesome. Well, you basically answered my next question so we can skip that one. So fans, fans like to complain about officials and blown calls. Um, but how many bang bang calls do you get in a game, and how often would you say that you would get them right um, in your mind? <laughs> it, you guys, it is so hard to officiate. And I did a lot of two man crew stuff when I did freshman and JV games for a while. And I will tell you, bad basketball is much harder to officiate than good basketball. I mean, I think the they, new officials end up refing the hardest games. You know, a, a freshman boys game that's physical with average players it's really hard to officiate how many blown bang bang calls oh what well, everyone's a bang bang i mean like everyone and how many did i miss per game <laughs> oh man several i don't know several i mean <laughs> and, and then you'd watch the tape afterwards and you'd hope and some of them you nail and some of them you nail and some of them are obvious and whatever but I mean, and once I got the second year when I was doing pretty big varsity games and some college, small college games, I was better. I was better. I could usually after the game be like those three. I kind of blew 
those three probably. Um, you know, I talked with some officials after an FHC game that I was at the other day just because I knew them, and I was like, you guys were good. Like, you guys were so good. And right away, the guy said two. He said there are two. I, I'll tell you right now what they were. The tip behind, I should have caught it out of bounds. I called it a foul. As soon as I blew the whistle and made the call, I knew I was wrong. And the other block charge early in the game, I should have been a play on, and I blew those two. And, like, fans and, and players and coaches don't think about officials like that. It was bothering him. But that's two out of, I don't know how many, how many make. 75 right. calls in a game? I don't know. So it's hard. It's hard. He tried his best, you know, and I always tried my best. But um, it's just a really difficult thing to do. And that's why when I watch the games, watch Michigan State or whoever play, I'm amazed by how good they, they go to the replay and go slow-mo when the guys get it right. I'm like, how did they do that? You know, it's incredible. Yeah, those crazy tips where there's lots of hands on the oh. ball and everything. So you actually mentioned something there that's a little off of our interview script, but Video um, makes sense to me, actually, now that you say it, that refs go back and watch your, your stuff to, to see and learn. But tell us a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, you're looking at it from a different perspective, but is that a pretty regular occurrence, or was that just you because you were trying to learn the craft? No, no, we did. A, a lot of officials do it. We met in, in Zoom meetings, and we actually met in my classroom and watched old game tape and would go up there on the board and draw positioning stuff. Part of it was I was being trained, probably, but I know that veteran officials do that as well. They, As a coach, I got a ton of requests for huddle tapes after games from officials. And actually, the director of officials in West Michigan, Brad Brunette, requests all of them, and they are on a website where officials can go watch themselves. And we have meetings. We have uh, monthly meetings as officials going over key calls, and we show video and we talk about it. You know, I just think I just think the whole perception of officials is just way off. That, you know, from a few of them that walk in looking pissed off and act mm-hmm. too good for the game, whatever. Right. And they most of the officials – a lot i mean a high high percentage officials are just trying to you know do something good for the kids and do the best job they can and um and get out of there without impacting the the results of the game love it absolutely so let's switch gears here and talk about building a program as a coach so how is it working with parents and which are your favorite type um least favorite type of uh parents to deal with loaded question here we go so yeah for 24 years i was the coach of personal central and tried to build a program and and we had some success we had some failure too but we had some success so the number of parents are we and we have to understand this as coaches and there's no way that a parent cannot watch a game and really genuinely for the most part only care about what their kid does and not i mean not only but like I mean, Andy, when you watch games, yeah. like, yeah, you're interested in how Hope does. You're interested in all of it, like in yeah. any parent. But what are you watching? Yeah, watching Ryan. I mean, you're watching yeah. your kid. Yeah. And I mean, how can you not? I mean, yeah. that's like, that's who we are. We're yeah. parents. We want our kids to have great experiences and do well. Duh, you know? So I don't think as a coach I ever expected anything less from parents. I mean, that's – no parents truly get it. How about that other statement? No parents truly get it and are in for just the team success. I'm just – just care about the team. You can even say it and act it and whatever, but no, deep down, I mean, you're a kid. I mean, yeah. you're a kid. Yeah. Um, so um, I tried to build a program the best I could with incredible open communication with parents. We had meetings um, before our summer um, activities with parents and the player. And I had a sheet that I filled out and I laid it right on the line. Very honest meetings before the summer before we went all our summer leagues and stuff and said, here's where they stand right now. Here's what they suck at. Here's what they're good at. If I had a game tomorrow, would they play or not? Or would they be cut? Here's where it all is. You have a summer to change it or whatever. 
and we'll talk more again in the preseason. Like, just wrote it all out, gave them sheets, they took them home. And some of those meetings were painful, like painful, painful meetings to say right now, like, your son would get cut, your son would be cut next year. So that's what would happen next year. It's better that you know. And they disagree, and that's, of course, they should, it's their kid. Right. But it was out there, and it was open. And I think in the end, parents appreciated that. And did people change their status? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But at least they knew I was going to be honest and open with them. So I guess the parents that were hardest to deal with, you know, just just parents that just didn't get what it took to build a program. Just, you know, just didn't see big picture at all. And that's... Couldn't see beyond just where their kid fit, but like also like, you know, it's okay for Jimmy to be, you know kind of riding the bench a little bit and earn his way through or be a scout team player, or it's okay for them to be sixth man. They don't have to, they can be the third or fourth scoring option on the court just to see the the broad of the team. And it is hard as a parent to balance between those two, certainly of what's, what's best for the team first, but then also what's going to give my kid the best experience. And if, especially if they're trying to be a college player, you know, what's going to put them in the best spot. So it's not an easy spot for anybody, but I think, you know, as a communications professional, that's the best thing you can do is communicate. We doesn't have to be, you don't have to sugarcoat it, right? Just nope. transparency. That's the key. Nope. And didn't have to agree even. You know, last <laughs> night, quick blurb from last night watching this game. So a kid uh, passed up a semi-open shot and his dad was sitting front row, like very involved in the game. <laughs> and as the, after the kid passed up the shot and passed to someone else, and I don't even know what the person did, the kid looked at the dad, the dad looked at the kid, and the dad screamed at him in the gym, like, you have to shoot the ball. And the and the kid's like, you know, like running back on D, communicating with his father. Um, and then came down next time, next trip, passed up a medium shot, skipped it to the corner to a wide open shot that was the perfect basketball play, went in, big shot, the dad. How are you not shooting? You have to shoot the ball. I mean, doesn't get it. Like, right. doesn't get it. Right. Like, that dad does not get it made the exact right play. And, you know, it's really clear right there is the kid does, Mm. you know, and I think that a lot of times I tried to build a program where the kids would even get more so where they fit and they would have to convince their parents to understand, no dad, like this is like, this is what it is, you know? And that's about the only way I think sometimes you can get a parent to really fully buy in. Interesting. I love that. That's, that's an awesome, awesome answer. Uh, so how how do you deal with players as a coach who aren't aren't happy with playing time or assume you're playing favorites? Yeah, you know I I got a text from one of my former players who's a varsity coach um, right now um, and said they had a huge win, huge win for their program. And right after the game, a few pair a few players were very upset with the coach and and went up to the coach afterwards and how can I play more? And a couple parent emails, and it's just like. You know, that's unbelievable with the amount of time that we put in to try to win games and you you can't even celebrate a win. And again, shows you very clearly that those players are not in for the big picture. There's not in for the big picture. And that's part of building the program is try to get them in for the big picture. I would just say, Ryan, again, open communication, you know, from, you know, I, I talk to my players all the time and still do about this is where we see it. Here's where you stand. Here's how you can change it. This is what it is. And no, they're just no shock, limited shocks in terms of, where people stood open, open, honest communication often. How how does that make you feel as a, from a coach perspective? So, you know, you just had a huge win 
then nobody's even abiding by the, you know, quote unquote, 24 hour rule. And they're right at you. I mean, what, what does that, obviously that takes away a little bit of that joy of the win. And so it becomes a relief like, Hey, we won. And now I got to deal with this instead of being able to celebrate it. I mean, do you just tell them come back to me tomorrow? Do you, do you just kind of listen to them then? Or what, what, what's your take there? Yeah. It tears your heart out really, you know, and I had very little of that in my last 15 years of coaching. Once, you know, once the program was established and we had success and the communication was open and whatever, I, I didn't have a lot of that. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how I would have dealt with those situations. I just didn't have a lot of it in my last 15 years or so. But, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, why don't coaches stay, <laughs> you know, Brian, why don't coaches stay? Right. I mean, is because, you know, you're busting your butt for no money and you're trying to give kids a great experience and that's what you get afterwards. I mean, absolutely. you know, it's hard. It's hard. Absolutely. Flipping gears to a more less angry part, I guess. <laughs> what, what does it take to, to build a winning culture as a coach? Sure. God, boy, that's, you have to read one of my books for that. Um, so, uh, I mean, How many books are we up to now, coach? Three books? Yep, three, uh, no, four? I'm, I'm two and three quarters. I'm two having some trouble finishing this last All one, right. <laughs> but I got two out there on Amazon. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, it's a really outlined in there. It's, 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 it would be about an hour and a half answer. You'd have to read my book, Ryan. And, and I think you saw some of the things I did when you were on the hope team and, and about communication and really trying to, you know, to make it bigger than that individual team or that individual person, I guess to try to wrap it up in a sentence or a statement would be, you know, you can go to a game and you can tell if a team is playing for something bigger than itself, bigger than that day, that team, those people. And Andy, you've been to a million high school mm-hmm. games and you see some programs where clearly just based on, I don't know, everything, how they warm up, how they talk to the coach, how the coach interacts, all of it, that it's a it's a day by day, fly by the seat of pants, try and yell and scream or to try to win a game. And then you can go to some games, and I'm sure you have, and afterwards you're like, okay, like that, that is a program. That is a, that is not just one year, one team. There's alumni in the stands. There's alumni parents in the stands. There's kids that get it. There's a bench that's involved. There's a relation, you know, just the whole picture. And, and, and you're nodding on my zoom right now. So I know you can tell that there. Yeah. So you just, all the little things, um, Ryan, that from open communication to getting kids, great gear to doing team retreats to winning, um, to doing being the hardest working person in the program. I mean, I think for most of the years, my players would have told you who spends the most time watching tape and planning and organizing. It was me and, and it should be. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, there's a long, long answer for how to build that. And, you know, we won games and we lost games. Um, but I think the culture in the program generally was one that you, you could watch and you would say those guys out there were playing for something greater than themselves. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, as a, as a, parent fan i've definitely seen it in pieces and parts and i kind of ironically and i were weird place you would think to see it one of the better places i've seen it in ryan's career was actually his 17u aau team um you know just a bunch of d2 d3 naia kids who beat zion williamson in las vegas because they played together and they had that support for each other and even though there were guys vying for their college scholarships they played together I think out of Ryan's four years I hope honestly I most saw it last year with the adversity of COVID and only you know 14 games and no fans but the way when we would have to even as parents unfortunately having to watch it on a live stream and I remember that Albion game third game in four days that you guys had played 
and your bench. Um, and that yes. said something right there to me. Like, or, or for me as a parent, my last great memory of watching my kid play was when he scored his 21st <laughs> points in his last home game in a MIAA playoff game. And every single person on the bench mobbed him on the floor. Now the game was well in, in play, so you know might have been a little different if it was a close game or whatever. But still, like that to me, that that's like there's something bigger there. Like the yeah. the young guys get it, the you know the old guy kind of passing the torch, you know, down to the younger guys. And I I completely agree with you. You can definitely tell. You can walk into a place and you can just sense it in the atmosphere. And and I do. I think that that's underrated. I think that's why a lot of coaches try to get alumni to come back. And maybe some don't spend enough time with it. I know, and having helped you kind of read through one of your books this past summer, or maybe it was two summers ago now, um, and just know how that goes. Like you, I sense that even you know when you and I went and watched Rockford Forest Hill Central play in the mm-hmm. in the districts right before COVID shut down. You, some you know, not a huge crowd in the gym that night, but you could just sense it, right? Like you can feel those things in a program, um, yeah. you know, that are left behind, and it's always interesting to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple more questions here. So I know it's in it's in one of your books. It's literally what one of your books is about. But give us a little synopsis. What was it like coaching uh, your own kids? Oh, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was awesome. We had hard times. Obviously, we had hard times, but it was awesome. Um, you know, coaching Jordan was incredible. You know, Jordan, his junior year, uh, sat the bench. I mean, we had an incredible team, incredible Pretty Xavier team. Tillman and other guys and whatever. And he hardly played. That is the year that he set the – still holds the record for three-point field goal percentage in a season. Limited attempts, but was a great shooter, obviously. But they're better players. And that, I think – was a real interesting time for, for my family and for me, but I think it did show everybody that there was an understanding and an awareness of, of the situation, you know? And then senior year, he got to play a lot and was all league and, and did well. And, and that was really special. He scored a lot of points in my 300th win up North in Traverse city. And that was a moment that we, we will just never forget. And then coaching Ty was, was, was awesome. I mean, he was good from the, you know, from the start junior year, first game started him and, and was like, Jesus, son, please make a shot or do something good. <laughs> and uh, I think he had 12 in the first quarter and it was like, okay, like clearly he's good enough and here we go. And we just had a great two years and, but it, it, it um, yeah, ups and downs, pros and cons. Did people question me? Maybe not so much publicly with me, but maybe privately. But again, my, I mean, my oldest sparingly played as a junior. It just wasn't good enough yet. Um, so yeah, it was an incredible experience. We look back at pictures. We look back at the time. We talk about it and wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And getting, you know, being with Ty again now is, is uh, yeah, just kind of getting to do it again is pretty darn cool. That's awesome. awesome. That's awesome. Last question. Hardest part of being a coach? Yeah, it's it's just losing, Ryan. It's just losing. Um, and, and there's so many other things, you know, the parents and the this and the officials and the planning and the time and the no money and the blah, 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 blah. But in the end, coaches aren't doing it for any of those kinds of things. They want to give kids great experience. And, and yeah, when we lost, mm, hard. Like it, was, it was not okay how hard it was. I mean, look at, I mean, take a picture of Tom Izzo 15 years ago and take a picture of Tom Izzo right now. Tell me what losing does to you now and then. And he wins a lot of games. Mm-hmm. But it's hard on your emotional and your physical. It's just hard. And um, and I have a lot of respect for coaches that do it for a long time uh, because, yeah, it can takes your heart away when you, when you dive in like that and then it doesn't end the way you want it to end. So it's – without a doubt, it's losing, Ryan. Losing is – and, and those people that say winning isn't everything, they're absolutely wrong. 
Well, and the sad part is, you know, for most people, coaches and players, your last game that you ever coach or participate in in some way, you're, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be a loss unless you're winning a championship, right? Like, yeah. I look at the Hope women's team this year, you know, all divisions, men's and women's, at the longest winning streak at 55. <laughs> if they get all the way to the national championship game undefeated and they lose, and those seniors, their last That's... game was a loss. It doesn't matter if they won 70 games in a row, right? It's like, yeah. so... That's what makes it even harder is that at the end, at the end of a, just a reg, of a season, right? There's one team standing. There's only one team that yeah. goes out having won, you know, unless you don't qualify for the playoffs. And, you know, obviously there's those, not everybody loses their last game. Right. But, yeah. but yeah. generally speaking, if you're playing for something meaningful, everybody pretty much loses their last game. And that's hard because nobody likes to lose. No, it's hard. Brutal. Well, Coach, this has been an awesome 45 minutes. I mean, well worth a couple of our segments for sure. Just change it up, get, get insights of, you know, a brilliant basketball mind, somebody who's who's done it all, right? Like the, the head coaching side, built a program, learned the officiating side at an age where I can't imagine myself trying to do it. I've talked about it once or twice with, hey, Ryan, let's do a father-son thing, and he's like, nope. <laughs> um, oh, you guys would love it, just saying, but anyway. We probably would. I'd get me in shape, that's for sure. Uh, but then, you know, then to see you back on the bench and, you know, selfishly for me, knowing, you know, having I've gone to Forso Central, but then, you know, watching your coaching career before I really knew you, then getting Ryan to have one chance for a year to play for you, at, you know, in addition to working camps and stuff for you has been great. We appreciate having you on. The podcast, we will definitely have you on again because I know that there's lots of basketball stuff that you are more than willing and able to talk about. I appreciate it. Anytime. That was very fun. That was a, I don't know about for the listeners, but for me, that was a fast 45 minutes. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out what everyone else thinks. Hey, it was good. I'll, I'll be listening back to it, so it was good. <laughs> appreciate it, Coach. All right, shout out to Coach George. Awesome, awesome interview there. Hope to have him back on in the future. He's trying to get Ryan and I to try officiating, see if we like it. We definitely will talk about that if we get on a podcast. All right, so moving to spot number three. Let's do, because we have not done this yet in our Mega Bowl preview that we did a few over the last few weeks, let's do a little CFP preview. We'll keep these a little bit short since we uh, took up two spots already with Coach. All right, Ryan, we got two games, New Year's Eve, I kind of thought that they were going to move away from that. Michigan State did that in 2015. Didn't get the greatest ratings uh, in those two games. But either way, maybe because it's a Friday, a lot of people maybe have the day off for January 1st, depending on how your company works things. But the first game at, what, 3.30, we got Alabama-Cincinnati. Then we've got uh, followed by Georgia-Michigan. Why don't you give us a kind of a quick what you think will happen in both of those games, and I'll do the same. Yeah, I'll start with the first one, bama Cincy. Um, you know, I think this one, one versus four, I mean, it's not the sexier game, but I, I feel like it could be interesting, but I just don't know if it will be. Um, Cincinnati has not played a team like Alabama. I mean, the Notre Dame's a good team. They beat them in a close one um, at Notre Dame Stadium, but that's not even close uh, to being Alabama. I, I think it could, I think it'll be close for a while. I think it'll be close at half, and I think Alabama ends up winning the game. Um, something along the lines of 38-17 um, kind of pulls away at the end. But I think Cincinnati's defense is an intriguing matchup against Alabama's high-flying offense. Um, you know, I think that could be interesting. I think Desmond Ritter's going to have to play almost a perfect game um, for Bama to, or from sorry for Cincinnati to have a chance in this one. Um, and Alabama's going to have to make some mistakes, um, and I don't really see that happening. I think Alabama gets back to another championship here. Um, 
and I was looking for, for two in a row here. And then Georgia-Michigan, um, definitely the, the better game here. Um, you know, both teams pretty good on both sides of the ball. I think Georgia's offense is not necessarily anything special. Uh, Stetson Bennett gets the job done, um, as does Cade, Cade McNamara. Um, both have good rushing attacks, pretty good O-lines. Um, I think the difference in this one's in the trenches. Um, Michigan's O-line's been really good all year. They've been very solid. They have not played a front seven of, of the caliber of Georgia. I think Georgia um, is going to overpower them up front on both sides of the ball. I think Georgia's going to run on Michigan um, a lot. If, if Michigan State could run the ball on, on Michigan, I think I think Georgia can um, with the offensive line they have. So I think I think it'll be close, uh, low score. I'd take the under in this one if I were betting the under here. I, I'm saying 21 to 10-ish Georgia. Um, I think it'll be a bit of a rock fight, but I think Georgia... It'll seem close, but I think Georgia will kind of dominate it in yards and stuff like that. I think that they have something to prove. They want a rematch against Bama um, to get that get that redemption over them um, for a little under a month ago and then for the 2017-18 uh, season there. So um, interested uh, to see how these play out. I really do think we're going to have an all-SEC championship, the one that I'm sure college football uh, people really wanted. So here we go. Yeah, as, as bad as the SEC is off to start in, in bowl games, I, I agree with Ryan. Um, I think last I saw Bama's a 14.5-point favorite over Cincinnati. I, I do think Cincinnati's certainly well-coached. I mean, look, Michigan State wanted Fickle really bad. Other teams have wanted him bad. I think he's a great coach. He's He's got some good talent there. You know, I would kind of liken Cincinnati – SEC-wise, they're probably pretty close to Texas A&M. Better offense, but pretty close to as good a defense. And we know what happened with Texas A&M. Texas A&M beat Alabama. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that that's going to happen. I mean, certainly, you know, Young is in a much better place than he was then. Alabama's kind of, you know, gotten their weapons going a little bit more. It's not the same offensive team that they had, you know, last year by any stretch. But I do think that... Alabama's got just a little bit more overall talent. I mean, you, you're going to go toe-for-toe NFL guys versus not. I mean, Cincinnati might have two or three NFL guys, and Alabama's probably got 15. And I think in the end of the day, that's probably what's going to be the difference. You know, I think Cincinnati, did they win last year when they played Georgia? Lost a close, Lost game. A close game. You know, I think that, I think they're going to give a good fight. I actually think that they're going to cover barely um, just because I think you know, I hate to say it, but I think Alabama might be looking forward a little bit ahead uh, to the to another game with Georgia and looking forward to yet another national title shot. I'm going to go 34 to 21 in this game. Um, I think it'll be a late touchdown that helps Cincinnati cover, um, but I do think they'll keep it close for a half. Georgia-Michigan, I mean, it's no secret what we want to happen for sure. Um, you know, certainly Michigan's got the one-two punch. Quorum is healthy. They've got Haskins. You know, McNamara has been able to, to you know, improve his passing game over the latter part of the season. But I agree with Ryan. I mean, they have not come close to seeing a defense like Georgia's. And I know Georgia got smacked around by Alabama. I get it. I get it. But I, no, not going to happen in this game. Um, I do think Georgia doesn't quite have as much fi- firepower to just run away with this thing. Um, but I think the difference is going to be who can stop whom in the in in the trenches, and I think that's going to be Georgia. I think they're what about a seven and a half, eight and a half, seven and a half. I think favorite. Right now, yeah. I think that they will cover that. Um, Ryan said twenty-one to ten. I, I I'll give 
a few more points in this game just because Michigan does have, you know, they pulled out some stops in the Big Ten Championship game, and we saw some different things that they did with what, Donovan Edwards. Is that his name? I mean, he might actually throw the ball better than either of the first two-string quarterbacks. But let's go Georgia 23, Michigan 14 in this game, and then a Georgia-Alabama finale, and we'll talk about whatever that finale is next week on the pod. All right, moving on. Spot number four. Change up the topic a little bit, but something you know we love here, and that is a Mount Rushmore. So I thought, let's do a Mount Rushmore of sports moments from 2021. And this could be things that were more personal in nature. This could be what you just think were the top four. It's, It's whatever you want it to be. I know what my top four are, but... We'll start with you, Ryan. You go first, and then we'll just kind of go back and forth here real quick. Yeah, I'm sure you have it on your list. I mean, we haven't talked about this at all, but my number one, uh, my favorite golfer of all time, winning the PGA at 50 years old, um, right up the road from where we were at that time, Phil winning the the PGA at age 50, um, phenomenal, um, yeah, unbelievable, loved every second of it. Yeah, I did. we didn't talk about this, and I did have that actually first on my list as well. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it was the biggest thing for me personally, but it was the first thing that came to mind for me. I mean, it is a story that transcended all sports. Uh, you know, the only thing that's going to come close to that in a few years is if somehow Tiger can get back to it and, and beat that record, which you know, as we've talked about, he's definitely going to be he's definitely going to be going for that. So um, that would be my number one as well. Number two, I, I mean, come on, you know who we are, you know who we love. Michigan State's win over Michigan, the way it happened, down 16, canine going off. Uh, I mean, I've been to, I've watched a lot. We covered this in our special podcast, a lot of Michigan State-Michigan games. I've been to the 1990 game. I was at the 2001 game. I mean, I've been at some great games. This was maybe as electric as I've seen Spartan Stadium, even with the 2001 game, which was a great game, regardless of how you felt about the the way that the ending went down. But to see somebody dominate a game like K9 and have so many ebbs and flows, the only thing I can think of to compare it to ebb and flow wise was, oh, back in what 2011 or so when Michigan State Wisconsin was at the the. Rocket game, the Hail Mary yep. game. I mean, it was like Wisconsin jumped on Michigan State, and then Michigan State came back, and then I mean, it was like it was like that, or the Ohio State Michigan State uh, Big Ten championship game, same type of thing. It was an absolute epic fight. Obviously, Michigan made the CFP. You know, Michigan mm-hmm. State ten and two, um, one of you know six or so seasons with a better than ten wins in school history. I mean, pretty phenomenal. That's number two for me. Yeah, uh, are we just doing four total? Or are we yeah, doing no, four, four, four each. Oh, for each. Okay, I definitely had that on there, so I won't talk about that. So that's my second one. So I guess third. Um, gotta be um, the buzzer beater, Gonzaga, Jalen Suggs. Um, I forgot about over, that one. Uh, UCLA. Um, UCLA obviously beat Michigan State, came back and beat them in the first four, um, then went on a magical run, had Gonzaga on the ropes, um, and then Jalen Suggs goes and sinks a half-court shot to win it. Um, send Gonzaga to the national title game. Unbelievable. Um, I'll never forget that, watching that. that. That was crazy. That did not make my list. I totally forgot about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember watching that and our reaction to it was just insanity. Imagine it had, you know, Butler done that to win the national championship against Duke when they just missed the half-court shot. It was kind of along those lines. Phenomenal. Not on my list, though. 
Number three on my list, I'm going to go up a little bit more of a personal sports moment for the year, and that was getting an opportunity to play Harbor Town Golf Links in Hilton Head um, and playing golf with Ryan. I mean, obviously, you know, we talk a lot about golf during golf season. We love our golf. Um, that that was just I played pretty horribly, but it was just such a great memory to play a PGA Never course. Um, it was everything it was cracked up to be. It was worth it. That was definitely on my on my list as well. Yeah, that, that's definitely up there for me. Um, this is tough. I think for me, um, the biggest thing, I, I guess, this is my last one because I kind of had the Michigan State Michigan on there. Um, was just getting college football back and being able to be in a stadium this year. I missed that so much. I just missed the the pageantry, um, the just the fans in general, that that atmosphere. Um, being able to be there, watching games on TV, and feeling that energy through the screen. Uh, missed that so much. I'm so glad that uh, I was able to do that. Um, and hopefully basketball continues to do that. Uh, if they don't, oh, geez. But, um, yeah, was able to go to a basketball game as well and feel that energy. Uh, hadn't been in almost two years, so crazy. Yeah, that's a great one. Great point. Um, I think for me, I kind of went back and forth between two other ones. And I, and I got to say, honestly, even though it was you know definitely probably one of Izzo and Michigan State's worst seasons since he first started at Michigan State, just the grit that they showed and the wins that they had to come up with down the stretch, three top five wins in the last two weeks of the season to get back to the dance. You know, yeah, they blew the 14-point lead against UCLA, which was a bummer, um, you know, in the play-in game or whatever. But just to get back in the the way the season went without really having a point guard step up and step in, um, you know, that was a pretty proud moment as a Michigan State basketball fan to see them find yet another way to get it done when you kind of looked around and wondered, how is this going to happen? And just as a bonus before we get to spot five, I mean, how can K-9 not be on your Mount Rushmore? Here's a guy that came in from the transfer portal. We thought, okay, this guy's going to be pretty good. He got some pretty good stats. And then to put up the games that is 75-yard touchdown on his first touch, we all know what he did against Michigan. Absolutely dominated them. You tell me Chris Hutchinson, sorry, Aiden Hutchinson, finished second for the Heisman, and yet he was on his ass watching Walker run over top of him time after time after time in that game. And so he gets a little bonus side spot on the mountain uh, of Mount Rushmore for the year. All right. Moving on to spot number five, let's go to a little Peach Bowl preview. All right, Ryan, get us started. Yeah, so uh, Thursday night, uh, 7 p.m., Atlanta, Georgia, Michigan State, Pitt. Um, obvious um, that Pitt has a big opt-out in Kenny Pickett, um, Michigan State, and Kenneth Walker. So those kind of balance each other out in my mind. Um, Pitt's backup is pretty good, apparently. I can't remember what his name is. Um, he's only thrown 14 passes in his career, yeah, though. So, he, I mean, he's playing Michigan State. Of course he's going to have a big game. <laughs> but Jordan Addison's Pitt's receiver, I think he won the Bolitnikoff. He's mm-hmm. pretty special. Um, big-time receiver. Um, should be tough to guard. I mean, I don't know. Their run game probably isn't there much. I think they're, they threw the ball a lot. Uh, lost their D.C. – or, I'm sorry, their O.C., obviously, to uh, Nebraska and Mark Whipple. Um, so it should be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, you know, I think Michigan State got to get there um, pass rush wise. Um, I think it's got to be in the front four, front seven, get it done because um, Michigan State's DBs obviously are, are weakness uh, to say the least. Um, but you know, I think that it should be all right. Hopefully, they'll dial up some some different packages and whatnot. 
bracket coverage, Addison, all this stuff. Um, we'll keep it interesting there. Uh, offensively, I think Michigan State will be fine. I think Pitt's got a decent defense, nothing special. Western um, put up 44. Right. Right. Obviously, losing K-9 isn't helpful, but I think by committee uh, with, with Eli Collins, Jordan Simmons, Harold Joyner, um, I think Michigan State can, can get it done running the ball. I think they're going to throw the ball more, though, I think close to 40 times with Peyton Thorne, um, who has all of his weapons back. Um, and the receiving core for the first time since the Michigan game, early in the Michigan game, Speedy's back. Uh, Reed's obviously, he's going to play. Uh, Malik Carr's coming on strong for Michigan State. Foster's play, has played really well down the stretch. Trey Mosley is one of the most consistent receivers I've seen. Um, so it should be interesting. I think Michigan State's going to throw it a lot. Wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, Speedy and JR go for 100-plus yards apiece um, and, and that good stuff there. But... I think Michigan State can move the football on pit. I think it's going to happen special teams-wise. Hopefully Coglin's healthy uh, if it comes down to any field goals. Berenger um, as well, he's healthy. Um, he's going to come back next year, which is good for Michigan State, not losing uh, an all-Big Ten caliber punter, uh, which is awesome. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm intrigued by this game. It should be interesting. Um, you know, I think, that, I think Michigan State is the better team. Um, I think they do prevail. I think it's going to be... Pretty close, I think 34, 28, 27-ish, I think, but I think Michigan State wins uh, wins the game and uh, goes off 11-2 uh, and two into, a, into an important offseason in uh, 2022 for Michigan State. A typical ESPN fashion, Michigan State's favored by 2.5, but their FPI or whatever you call it says Pitt's got a 62% chance of winning. Shocking. Look, I think Pitt has less chance than, than Ryan does, to be honest. If they had Pickett, maybe a different story because I do think that he would probably sit back there and pick Michigan State apart. I do think, based on some stuff I've read, I'm feeling a little bit encouraged. You know, guys are back healthy for starters. We're pretty dinged as the season went on, so we're healthy. I think they're going to come up with some different ways to kind of mix it up and get a little bit better pass rush on. And it depends on how you look at Michigan State. So if you look at it from total passing yards per game, yeah, last and probably pretty by far last in or FBS. However, middle of the pack, number 62 in yards per pass play. Now, teams also throw more on Michigan State than they've thrown on anybody else, so that all kind of balances out. I think, you know, the bend don't break. I think they're going to get a little bit more pressure. I think they're going to cook some different things up. It's not likely that we're going to see Crouch. That hurts the the linebacking attack a little bit, but I think it gives a chance um, to some other guys. I think, you know, Michigan State has not been dinged by opt-outs. Honestly, Tucker's got kind of an interesting take on it. If you're in, you're in. You know, you can transfer after the bowl game, and the only one I think not playing really is um, Dowell. So, I, you know, interesting kind of take there. He and Narduzzi kind of called him out a little bit for it. Um, I do think Michigan State's going to pass, but I think it's going to be pretty balanced. And, I, you know, I liked how Collins was running late in the season. I think Simmons is, you know, he's a, a good fast back that hits the hole hard. He just doesn't wait for things as much, and I think he's got some stuff to learn there. But I think between them, Joyner as the third down back, I think Michigan State's got a great chance to to run the ball enough to keep things honest. They've got their full cache of weapons offensively. Um, I think Michigan State's going to come up with a, a way to kind of get to the quarterback. They don't have a whole lot of film on this dude because he's barely played. I mean, in two years, he's got 14 passes thrown. Um, but I'm going to go, uh, Ryan, you went with 34-28. I'm going to go Michigan State. Um, I'm going to go 33 to 23. I think Michigan State's going to win by by 10. Um, and I think it'll be a game that doesn't even quite feel that close, to be honest. So 
All right, that's five spots. We'll be back next week to talk about a lot of those things. So let's finish up as we always do with our sprint. And again, as I've gotten in the habit of, um, I'm going to try to stump Ryan with a couple of these because I've not shared these with him. But here we go. First line, best Christmas gift. Um, that's tough. Mm. Uh, I'll say the the hundred and sixty dollar gift card uh, from my grandmother, and and you get the same thing uh, mm-hmm. to Arcadia Bluffs for twenty twenty two. Play a little golf up at our favorite spot. Uh-huh. All right, half court, best in winter, top golf or a simulator? Uh, top golf. It, I mean, it have to be that. I, I, we need I'm one in Grand Rapids. Come on, top golf. What are you waiting for? I mean, this is a mecca. People would go. Would be all over that. Um. Best pod segment of the year. Uh, it's just got to be the Michigan episode in general. I think that was that was so fun, um, and we had awesome guests. And one NFL team you'd bet the house on to win the Super Bowl this year? Uh, it's got to be the Chiefs. They're playing the best right now, both sides of the ball. Um, I wouldn't have said that in early October. I wouldn't have thought they would make the playoffs. Now they're the hottest team in the NFL. Yeah, for me, best Christmas gift. I always get lots of good stuff from the fam. Got some good Michigan State gear and stuff, but I got to agree. It's that $160 um, gift card to, to go either to, to pay for a, an early season round completely or to put it towards a mid-season round. Looking forward to that already. Cannot wait. Love that golf course. Definitely, beside probably Harbor Town, my second favorite course I've played. Um, better in winter, top golf or a sim. You know, I would love to have a top golf here, but I think what I liked about the sim is just that you get some, you know, that top that track man feedback and you actually kind of feel like you're playing around with how realistic things are. And we had fun doing that yesterday, playing nine holes at Liberty National. I'm gonna go with the sim. Best pod segment of the year. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a special episode, I don't know how we're gonna top that next year to tell you the truth, but in addition to that one, I'll, I'll go in a, another one. My favorite thing that we did regularly this year was golf course reviews. I'm sure probably most people could give two you-know-whats about that, but it's just fun to kind of talk through it and think through those different aspects of what we love about golf. And one NFL team, I'd bet the house on to win the Super Bowl this year. I was thinking Chiefs, but I'm actually going to go with the Packers. Now, you can't sell Tom Brady short. You know what happened last year. He won it without Belichick. But I just like the way that the Packers are playing, even though they've been pretty dinged up this year. I'm going to go with that. All right, Ryan, give us a final social media reminder, and we'll wrap us up. Uh, you know the drill. Follow us on Twitter at the Final Score 35. Uh, we thank you for listening. Happy New Year. Um, yeah, appreciate you guys. Yep, echo that. We'll we'll be back uh, New Year's the day a couple days after New Year next next week. Um, we'll be all over bowl season. We'll be all over basketball. Big 10 basketball will be back in play. Plenty of stuff to talk about. NFL playoffs right around the corner. Lots to look forward to. In the meantime, want to throw a shout out to our uh, loyal sponsor team, Andrews Realty for thank you for all you do to support the podcast and for all you do in the West Michigan area. If you need a realtor in West Michigan, do yourself a fever favor and don't, don't get a fever. Do yourself a favor. Go to teamanders.com. Meantime, A very fitting quote from my good friend Forrest Gump, given what we face today and have the last 22 months plus. Stupid is as stupid does. God help us all.